Hello and welcome to the Sweeper Podcast with me, Mitchell Willis, and him, Michael Hall. Good afternoon. How are you? Yeah, I'm alright. I'm trying, I mean, as as the week continues, it gets further and further away from the absolute atrocity that was uh, my team's performance on Saturday. So, I'm getting there. Gets close to the next one though, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. Can't wait to talk to you about that. I know, but you sound so excited about Villa, and as you may well do, because they're up into fourth. And Indeed, everything's Indeed. looking rosy in the uh, in the Midlands Garden. Yeah, it's a bit exciting at the minute, but uh, we'll we'll touch on that after uh, getting into the Premier League action because it returned after the international break, didn't it? It did indeed, and it, it, it returned in a big way. It there did. Was lots of goals, lots of action, and um, I think there's only one place that we can start, really, isn't there? And uh, that's at the Emirates. It is indeed. So the first North London derby of the season. And uh, I think Arsenal were looking for revenge, weren't they, after uh, the league results last year. And by God, they got it, didn't they? Indeed. There was so much talk before the game, wasn't there, yeah. about how Spurs were going to blow them away. Spurs have been so good this season away from home and Arsenal couldn't really string a, a decent set of results together home and away. I know that their form at home has been pretty good of late and... Um, yeah, they just sort of turned the form book upside down, didn't they? And uh, and steamrolled them. Tottenham just didn't look at the races at all. No, they didn't. I think, you know, with Arsenal, it's it's an interesting one because they, they haven't turned into a bad team overnight. Everyone else has strengthened around them. And, you know, realistically, they didn't really lose any players in the summer. They've only strengthened. So there's no reason to suggest that they should be struggling this year. And, you know, having watched them on Saturday perform like that, and particularly, I think, you know, we have to highlight the, the impacts of, Sanchez and, and Meza Ursel, because the, you know they were possibly the two best players on the pitch on Saturday, and they're the ones that we were kind of questioning at the start of the season whether they were going to make or break Arsenal season. And you know at the moment they're proving their doubt as well. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that that Arsenal have got good players and that that they didn't necessarily weaken their side in the summer. I think the issue with Arsenal has always been the defensive in, inconsistencies, yeah. and um, they managed to get through this game with a clean sheet, which is no mean feat against a Tottenham team who previously put three goals past Real Madrid yeah. and. Obviously, been been in really good form in the Premier League, but I think that you saw the best side of Arsenal here, and all of their fans now will obviously be looking for them to build on it. And and I know they're playing the Europa League on Thursday; they're pretty much through in their group yeah. as, as as far as that goes. And then they've got a massive game at the weekend again. So it's just it, it it's building on these performances, which is something that Arsenal have struggled to do in recent years, and it's and it's trying to put a run together. But they're sitting pretty at the moment, and that result will not only mean a huge amount to the fans, it will mean a huge amount to Arsene Wenger and the players. You sort of saw that that sort of smile on Wenger's face and the uh, the way that the, that the players were interviewed afterwards. Yeah. You haven't seen that for a while with Arsenal and you wonder whether that, that pressure that's been building on them is, is, is beginning to lift a little bit. And I think as well, importantly, they got a stroke of luck, didn't they? Particularly that first goal and you know the, the Davinson Sanchez tackle was, was a good tackle ultimately and Mike Dean for possibly the first time ever has gone against Spurs for something and you know, the, the decision for the for the offside that, that should have stood, um, but, you know, was kind of overlooked for the Mustafi goal was, was, you know, just one of those things. And I think Arsenal played on that and, you know, they went for it. They went for the kill afterwards and they got that second goal, you know, pretty quick afterwards as well. Yeah, they did. And one of those old cliches is that you are at your, uh, your weakest yeah. after you've just scored a goal. But in this case, it was sort of turned on its head and Tottenham just crumbled within the space of, of a few minutes. And... Um, I know that obviously the first goal there was a lot of controversy about it. I don't think a huge amount was made about the quality of the touch from Sanchez from that ball that was fired yeah. in from Lacazette for the second goal because he absolutely belted that at him and to be able to bring it down and then sit Lloris down the way that he did because most players would have just hit that first yeah, time but he didn't, did he? Um, he he shaped to, sh- to shoot and then 
as soon as Larice went down, obviously he's got a much bigger target to hit, and it just made it easier. But it was a great finish, and um, they sort of killed the game within a five-minute period. And Tottenham never really looked like coming back. But I want to get your thoughts on the whole Dele Alli Harry Kane situation because from the outset it didn't look as though they were fit. Yeah. Yet Pochettino still played him. I would have thought it would have made more sense to leave him on the bench, maybe bring him on with 20-25 minutes or to go. Or just play one. Just just start with one. I think or maybe would have started with with Kane um and and then you know realistically you can get a sense for how the game's going then. And um, Kane will will get chances throughout the 90 minutes regardless whether he's on form or not. I think Dele Alli's maybe slightly different and I think he would have possibly had a bit more of an impact coming on for the last half an hour if necessary and um, you know, ultimately they were both kind of burned out, weren't they, after after kind of sixty minutes because they had to work so hard for the team. But you know, Kane, as I say, will, will always get chances, and I think it just wasn't his day. He, you know, is always top of the kind of shots target, uh, shots on target, and shots off target stats. I would imagine as well. But I think you know there were probably bigger issues for Spurs um, on Saturday, and I think you know you look at some of the other players that are missing, the likes of Alderweireld and Winks and. You know, when Dyer has to drop in centre half as well, you're not quite sure that you can. I wouldn't say necessarily trust him, but you know that's not his favoured position, and I think he's nowhere near as good as Alderweireld as well. So it's it's not really a like for like swap, is it? Yeah, and I think it's the it's the knock on effect of taking him out of that central midfield yeah, area exactly. and having Sissoko in there, who's not a central midfielder, alongside Dembele, who is more of a creative midfielder yeah. than um, the likes of Wanyama and Dyer, who will break the play up and then get the ball moved into the likes of Ericsson and Ali, and they obviously missed that. And um, Tottenham just didn't move the ball quick enough on on Saturday. And, and I know that they, they touched on, on Arsenal's pressing game, which is something that you would generally sort of associate with Tottenham. And um, they just didn't seem able to do that. And one of the criticisms of Pochettino throughout his management career so far is that he doesn't have a plan B. Well, he, he kind of showed that when they went, went, they, uh, when they went away to Real Madrid and he started with both Llorente and yeah. Kane there. But... You didn't get the sense in this game that he had anything that he was either able or willing to do really about um, about the current sort of state of the game. And Tottenham fans actually started to criticise him for it, which you just wonder whether they're they're possibly getting a little bit too far ahead of themselves. At the end of the day, it's, it's one game that they've lost, and it's not going to make or break the season. I, I agree to a certain extent. I think you know the, there was one game that they've lost there, but. I think they have kind of flattered to deceive this season. I think they've they've also got a bit of an excuse with the um, obviously moving into Wembley and the performances haven't been great there. And I think they've they've got by on the fact they are a quality side and they possibly haven't played um, you know many sides that they wouldn't expect to beat there. Obviously Chelsea did very well there at the start of the season. Liverpool, yes, they had a very good result against them, but Liverpool are Liverpool and they handed it to them on a plate. And I think the only other standout result throughout the whole season so far is that in the league anyway, is Everton away. I can't really remember much else that, that they've done. And I think potentially some of that is linked to the ha- the fact that they haven't got a plan B. I think they are struggling to um, break out of the, the identity that they've made for themselves and perhaps win games, uh, you know, with a scrappy manner. And obviously, you know, they very much rely on Kane doing well. They rely on Ali doing well. Ericsson as well, obviously had a very good international break, but was very much held down at the weekend and, and didn't really get that opportunity. So it, it's a difficult one. I think, you know, they they will be there or thereabouts at the end of the season, but I don't think they're going to be making as big an impact as they did last year. So No, I think you're right. I think that um, one thing that was really interesting was the way that Alan Shearer talked about on Match of the Day afterwards. And he said that until Tottenham do win a trophy, 
they will still be seen as um, a failure, really, yeah. in terms of what the other teams in the top six are doing. Because you look at the likes of Chelsea, you look at the likes of Arsenal, you look at the likes of Manchester United and Manchester City, um, and they've all won trophies over the last few years. And um, that's something that Tottenham are yet to do. And obviously going out of the cut to West Ham a couple of weeks ago put even more pressure on them because you would have just thought that's the sort of trophy that they could win, win the League Cup, and then that shuts everybody up. And then you can concentrate on the league. But if you're concentrating on the league and not winning it, then there's constantly going to be challenges. Indeed. One of the clubs that you mentioned there, Manchester United, big win for them. 4-1 at home to Newcastle and a bit of a shaky start. And uh, and to be fair, I think Newcastle did create quite a few good chances throughout the game. But United obviously welcomed back Paul Pogba to the starting lineup, And Zlatan Ibrahimovic on the bench as well. It's not a bad substitute to bring on. Um, granted, they I think they were three or four, you know, up at that point anyway. But you know, Pogba himself slotted back in with with absolute ease and strutted around the park and really did make the difference. And it, I think it's going to be interesting over the next couple of weeks to see how much they actually missed him. I don't think we'll know how much they missed him until we see him back in action. But you know, they have been quite slow to get into games. They've been content to just win one nil, and I think he gives them that other option now where they can maybe stretch the games a little bit more and, and, and go for it. And we may start seeing them score goals again. Yeah, I mean, you look at the results they had at the start of the season, they were scoring on average about three or four yeah. goals a game. And um, it's no coincidence that you take Pogba out of that team and the goals begin to dry up a little bit. You bring him back in and straight away people are playing with more freedom. And yeah. the energy that he brings to that side is something that you don't really find in any other player in the Premier League. I think he's he's different to pretty much anybody else from that point of view. Um we talked about Lukaku and how he'd gone off the boil and he'd obviously gone a few games without a goal and we, we obviously raised the point prior to the international break that he could go away with Belgium, potentially get his confidence back, which he's, he's done that. Yeah. He, he, he got a couple of goals in the international break for them and I think he might even be Belgium's all-time leading scorer now. now yeah, I think so. Pogba then slots straight back into the team and Pogba's on the score sheet, Lukaku's back on the score sheet and everything looks much more rosy in the United Garden than it maybe did a month ago. I think just on Lukaku as well, we've, we've quite often spoke of, you know, seasons gone by, the lack of kind of challenges to his position in the team. I think with Ibrahimovic back in now, there's not much of a bigger challenge that you get. And, you know, I think he's content to play a little bit deeper if necessary, but I think if you watch him come on the pitch at the, at the weekend, I think he kind of pushed Lukaku out, out wide, didn't he? And he was content to, to actually just go through the middle. And, you know, he, he was unlucky not to score with, a standard Zlatan scissor kick, but um, but no, it, it, it's looking good. But I think you know we have to touch on Newcastle's performance. I think four-one possibly flattered Manchester United, and I think Newcastle actually looked really good, certainly in the first half, and they were unlucky to go in, um, you, you know, without being ahead. And on another day, they potentially take some of those chances and and, and get a little bit of luck going their way as well. Yeah, it's one of these games where um, you almost think they scored a bit too early, yeah, um, and doing that can light the spark in the other team and it can it can create a more um a more difficult team to come up against because naturally then they're chasing the game whereas when it's nil nil you can sort of look to fill the other team out a little bit and wonder what they're all about. But um United knew as soon as Newcastle had scored that goal that they had to go for it and get yeah. back into the game. Um I thought that the way Dwight Gale took that goal was 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 really really impressive because what they didn't show on, on TV was the camera angle where Lindelof actually slipped and you, Gale didn't get as good a view as the ball as he might have done yeah. if somebody had been stood up. And I thought he took it really well. Um, 
if Jacob Murphy scores when he's then through one on one against um, De Gea just after that, it's a completely different game because United chasing three goals at home is different to United chasing two goals at home. And when that second goal went in from Smalling before half time, just all the shackles came off. Yeah. It was total relief, right? We're in a winning position now, and there was only really one way that that game was going to go in the second half. But I think Newcastle deserve a certain amount of credit. I think Benitez maybe made the wrong decisions in the second half. I think he should have maybe looked to shore it up a little bit and um, tried to hit him on the break. They became a little bit more expressive and, and, that, and that left gaps that United exploited quite easily. But um, but yeah, I mean, a decent first half performance from them and they wouldn't have expected to get anything there. So they'll move on without really losing any real confidence. It's fairly safe to say that one manager this weekend didn't put the, uh, put the brakes on and... and didn't hold off the team that he was facing. That was Tony Pulis. And uh, his West Brom side lost 4-0 at home and uh, to Chelsea. And, of course, he uh, lost his job. And I wouldn't say it's as a result of that game. I think it's been a long time coming. I think uh, if you listen to him after the game, I think he knows that, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he was a, a beaten man. He looked a little bit like Slavon Bilic in his yeah, interviews yeah. a fortnight ago. And um, you just wonder why they keep the managers on for these games. Because how many... Of that West Ham, uh, of that West Brom board, thought that they were going to get a result against Chelsea on Saturday. Yeah. Um, it's like when they gave Billich two jobs to save his, uh, sorry, two games to save his job. He beat Spurs away, lost the home game against Liverpool on the Saturday, and they sack him. So you just, I don't necessarily agree with these sort of short periods of time to give managers the benefit of the doubt or or whatever it might be. And I, I don't think that it's fair to necessarily sack a manager after you've lost four 0 at home against one of the best attacking teams in the Premier League. Um, Tony Pulis will get another job, we all know that, yep, and sure. he will probably manage in the Premier League again this season, and he will probably keep that team up. I understand West, uh, West Brom fans' issue, though, because the negativity that surrounds his approach to football of late has been second to none, and I think that something had to change. Uh, they've got a squad there that's good enough to stay up, and I think they probably will stay up, but I, I can understand why they've made that change, and... Um, I know we're going to go on and talk about the game because that's the most important thing. But I think that Tony Pulis is one of these people who you know what you're getting with him. And if you are a connoisseur of football, like a club in terms of West Ham or like a Liverpool or like a Manchester United that tend to play in a certain way, then you wouldn't want him anywhere near your club. If you are a football fan that wants your team to stay in the Premier League, then sometimes you've got to sort of bite your lip and think, do you know what, we're going to stay up here, uh, we're going to have some crap games, we're going to have some, some decent games, and I'm not going to enjoy the football style. And it's it's a really difficult one to get right, and you you wonder whether West Brom might actually regret that decision. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting one, because the likes of Tony Pulis, it, you know, he's, he's often brought in to fight a fire, and then keep you in a position... And I think now the Premier League, more so than ever, has got to a point where there's, there's that ambition to, to push on. But that's happened with everybody. So it's a lot more difficult to hold that place. You know, if we look, I don't know, say 10 years ago when the likes of Fulham were, you know, constantly, you know, they were up there and, and Stoke have done it. Stoke have done it really, really well. But I think now clubs, fans, players, whoever it might be, are looking for that next step up. And I think. That's where the likes of Pulis and potentially Allardyce struggle um, with that reputation. And actually, you know, it's always a kind of better the devil you know situation. And yeah, they may well be looking back thinking, do you know what, we shouldn't have done that. But potentially taking that risk pays off. Um, 
I'm not sure who goes in to, to do what they can do because actually I think the squad that they've amassed there under Pulis fit with Pulis um, and if you're going to try and get something out of them certainly at this stage of the season unless you're willing to invest a fair bit of money in January you're going to struggle to do that I think Yeah I agree I think I think it's a really good point about the playing squad that he's put together there because they are the, the sort of players that he put together at Stoke um, yeah. and, and also Palace to a degree and you saw it took a couple of seasons for Mark Hughes to change the way that Stoke played and um, it wasn't pretty at times because those players have been used to training um, and used to certain drills and methods that they almost had to try and forget about to, to become better footballers. Yeah. And um, I like your point about the Premier League as well because it's almost like it's become a victim of its own success that now there are so many teams pushing and um, you you almost have to go with sort of substance over style rather yeah. than the other way around. And um, I, I wonder how how long it will be before he's out the game. I think the longer Tony Pulis is out the game for, the harder it will be for him to come back in. I agree. Um, and and that's obviously something that we need to look at. And I think we need to talk about the game because yep. um, this was a, an in- incredible performance from Chelsea. When you look at the, um, the nature of West Brom's tactics, generally the way that they set up, to go there and win 4-0 is, is sort of testament to the tactical approach that Conte had to this game. And, Playing Hazard just off Morata, those two seem to be developing an understanding which is almost second to none in the Premier Looks League. Looks good, doesn't it? it? Does look really good, and you know I think they will get into their stride. I think they've they've kind of got over a few injuries over the last couple of months, and you know they again they will be there or thereabouts like Spurs. And I, I do still worry about the squad depth at Chelsea, and there's obviously still something behind the scenes somewhere with Conte and. You know, there's always that uncertainty, but when you watch them on, on Saturday, they look fantastic. And I think the good thing with them is they've got people performing in, in, in all manner of positions as well. It's not just Hazard and, and Morata that are dragging them through. The defence generally looks quite solid. Kante sits in midfield and, and Fabregas having a great season as well. Yeah, Kante makes such a difference, doesn't he? Yeah. The um, the period of, of struggle that they had um, a few weeks back was, was while he was out of the team and he comes back in and he just makes such a big difference. Um before we move on, I just want to ask you whether you think there is any better goal-scoring defender in the Premier League than Marcus Alonso. Um, there, there probably isn't. I think you know if you look at all of their defenders. In fact, you know Aspilicueta's having a great season going forward with his assists, and I think Alonso offers something. He's got height as well as as obviously being a very talented individual as well. So I think you know currently, with the exception of you know someone like Leighton Baines who will take the penalties and you know, the odd free kick, then I think he probably is, certainly from open play anyway, and I think that's testament to the way that Chelsea play. Absolutely. Um, it's time to talk about Manchester City, with probably the uh, the furthest down the running order they've been all <laughs> season, isn't it? Um, and they won again. Yeah, they could have easily been at the top again, couldn't they? But uh, yeah, I think it was, it was an interesting one, wasn't it? Obviously, uh, company was back for them and, and was almost off again in two minutes, and for a change, it wasn't because of injury. It was because of one of the most horrendous tackles I've seen in a long time. And Red card for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think you have to... I think I think they may have said it on match of the day. If it was later in the game, I think you probably would have sent him off. But And, and if you look at it from a, a kind of textbook point of view, there was potentially another defender there. But the defenders there 
to maybe get back to Peter Crouch and not Jamie Vardy. And Ultimately, this, you have to look at the individual circumstance. And this is it. Do they look at the individual circumstance or is it a black and white decision in terms of there was a covering defender, we don't think about the person and their capabilities in terms of their speed. We think of whether there's a covering defender or not. It's wrong if they were to do that, I think. Um, you know, the, the game is so fast now that I think you do have to take that into consideration. And ultimately... Nine times out of ten, that centre-forward is probably going to be quicker than a centre-half anyway. So I think it's irrelevant. Unless you can... Obviously, you can't guarantee that John Stones is going to get back in there. But unless you've got 100% certainty that he will, it's a red card. End of. Uh, Jamie Vardy is quicker than most. He's probably in the top ten quickest players in the Premier League. Uh, one of the quickest in the world. So he's probably his main attribute. So for me, he's not getting back. He's not tackling him. And Jamie Vardy's got you know, 50, 50 chance of scoring and uh, the game possibly changes. I think with Man City at the moment, it probably doesn't. Uh, I think they shift things around. Uh, Stones went off injured and they managed to, to deal with that. Um, and ultimately, as we've said before, their best form of defence is attacking and they've shown that in this game. The pace with which they kept breaking um, because Le fair play to Leicester, they did come on to them, they did have some really good chances but as soon as Manchester City got the ball in their third, in their last third, it was in the final third within a matter of seconds every time. And that wasn't just a, a punt up either. That was three, four, five players in there as well. No, it was interesting to see that Leicester hit the post in the second half through. I think it was Harry Maguire. Yeah, it was. And within 25 seconds, yeah. Leicester, uh, they'd conceded. Uh, City had gone straight to the, the other end. It almost looked to me as if Sane had picked the wrong pass because there was, I think, um, three City players going absolutely kind of hell for into the, yeah, yeah, into the six-yard box. And he pulled it back to De Bruyne, who was probably 30 yards away at the time, and we all saw what happened. What An incredible finish. strike into the top corner, and that's what he can do. And and I'm going to watch Southampton against City in a few weeks, and I'm, I'm absolutely terrified. I, I can't tell you. I'm, I'm worried about the possibility of being double figures. I, I just, I'm not sure how you stop it. And, you know, they are actually unstoppable at the moment. There's nothing you can do against it. And... I don't think you can play against it. I don't think you can sit back and do anything. I think it's just um, you have to get a bit of luck on your side. But they're great to watch, and and you know every player on the pitch is is very much uh, at the top of their game at the moment. And you know just just before we move on, the noise that that was made when uh, De Bruyne scored that goal was wonderful. You just heard the whole goal kind of shake. Um, and, and also as well, I love seeing David Silva's reaction when the first goal went in. He obviously played the ball across the box, but. I think he was so elated with the way they scored as opposed to the actual goal itself. He just loved being part of that goal and there were such intricate passes that, that that's exactly what they want. You can tell that's exactly what Guardiola wants as well. Yeah, that was page one in the Guardiola yeah, yeah, handbook, absolutely. wasn't it? It was literally something that you can tell that they've worked on in training so much and um, you're going to see probably another 10, 15, 20 goals which yeah. will look exactly the same as that from City between now and the end of the season. And speaking of goals, Bournemouth got four at home to Huddersfield but... I'm not sure that tells the whole story. I think Huddersfield topped pretty much all the statistics with the exception of the goals. And, you know, they started very well. And obviously Callum Wilson's got himself back fit and he's, he's got himself a hat-trick as well. Yeah, and this game could have been so different. Yeah. I think that um, Aaron Moy looked instrumental start of the game, as he usually does. Exactly. Um, and he, he picked out a couple of brilliant passes early doors. And if they score through, I think it was Scott Malone that went through early on, if they score then... Um, and then they had another chance pretty much straight after. I think it was Van La Parra. Right? It yeah. could have been the other way around. If those, if if either one of the goals goes in, then it's a completely different game. Um, Bournemouth have been 
up and down this season, really, haven't they? They've not been very consistent. More and, down than up. Yeah, and you could see the relief of having somebody like Wilson up there. I think yeah. that he's a different type of player to Jermaine Defoe. Um, he's different to Josh King, and it's been difficult when you've tried to watch Eddie Howe pairing Josh, Josh King and, yeah. and, and Defoe because it's clearly not working. King and Wilson worked brilliantly on Saturday, and, and he will score all sorts of different goals. The header from the corner, um, and then the other two are just instinctive finishes, and... Um, they were able to move the ball so quickly, and I think that that's what did for the Huddersfield defence. They were missing. Um, oh, who? Which, which defender were Huddersfield missing? Schindler. Yes. He he was out of the team, and, and Martin Craney came in for his first Premier League appearance of the season, and it made such a difference. You take the best defender out of any Premier League team, yeah, naturally they're going to be weaker, and um, Bournemouth exploited that, and they moved the ball really quickly, and. Um, the relief on Eddie Howe's face at the end was was sort of clear to, clear for all to see. They've had a massive couple of games now. They've won away at Newcastle, four 0 at home to Bournemouth. Uh, sorry, four 0 at home to Huddersfield, and that'll that'll take the pressure off Howe. Yeah, hundred percent. I think you know we have to just give a mention to Huddersfield, who you know we we've enjoyed watching so far this season. We've enjoyed watching them, uh, the team, the fans, and and they're really enjoying it. But you know there's. A little bit of a struggle there, isn't there? And, and as you say, you know, without your best defender, naturally that's a good excuse to use. But you know, they've conceded seventeen and twelve, which potentially doesn't sound like a lot, but actually, you know, they're big losses at the end of the day as well. Yeah, when you consider the way that they started the yeah, season, exactly. I think they started with like five clean sheets on yeah. the bounce. So actually, when you think they've conceded seventeen and seven, then it starts to look a little bit worse. Yeah. Um, but they won't get too down. They'll 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 regroup as they always do, and and they'll. They'll come back. I, I still don't think they're in any real danger no. of getting dragged into it. And uh, they'll be pleased with the first points haul from their uh, from their initial 12 games. Yes, they will indeed. Well, join us after the break where we will catch up on the Championship and also the Bundesliga. Yeah, and listen out for uh, a potential clue or two to the, uh, to the first few questions of our quiz on the 6th of December. Sorry, guys. I, I was going to, you know, kick it up the other end and just put one... Right in their fucking goal hole, but no dice. <laughs> Welcome back to the Sweet Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We are now going to go for a championship roundup. We've had two rounds of fixtures since we last recorded, so I'll just quickly run through some of the key results. There's still a few fixtures to play this evening, I may I add, but uh, I think we'll start with the side in fourth place in the table. I think you mentioned it earlier. Aston Villa picked up six points over the two games with a 2-1 win away at the QPR. And a 2-1 win against Chris Coleman Sunderland. Fortunately, the new manager bounce didn't come into play. But I think I might have called 2-1 last, last week, didn't I? When we recorded. You uh, called QBR anyway. You called an away 2-1 win. Yeah. And I called an away 3-0 defeat. So maybe we should Put leave money this, on this. Yeah, leave this, this podcasting lark alone. Yes. And just uh, quit our jobs and become full-time gamblers. Indeed. But just before we move on to how good Villa are... What are your thoughts on Coleman? Um, honestly, yeah, I'm not a hundred percent convinced by Coleman himself or by him taking the job. I think he's probably realised that he's not going to get a job in the Premier League, and I think Sunderland's probably one of the biggest three sides yeah, yeah. in the Championship. Yeah. Um, and I think that. He probably sees it as a project, and I don't know whether he's going to get the time yeah. that you would do on the international scene because ultimately you have no choice in terms of the players that you can pick. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I wonder whether they will be as trigger happy with him as they have been with previous managers. If he's given time, I think he'll do okay. But I still think it could be a bridge too far in terms of the time scales that he's given. It's a terrible job to go and take as well. But I mean, to be fair, the the only positive that I can necessarily put a spin on it with is that you're almost in a win-win position because if you do do crap, um, do do crap, do do crap. If you do do crap, ultimately you're on a hide into nothing in the first place. You know they are a club in disarray. If you do a good job and certainly keeping them up for the time being, um, and anything built on after that, again you've got. A massive amount of credit in your bank to, to play with afterwards. Well, it can't get any worse. They're bottom of the league. Exactly. So and that, and that's that's the point. You know, ultimately they are shit. So <laughs> you know, if they if they don't get anywhere, then people just go. Well, do you know what? They are so bad that it doesn't matter who comes in and does and tries to do the job. They're not going to do it. But let's move on. Anyway. No, no, no. Move, before we before no, we move no, on, we've I know at least four Sunderland fans listen to this podcast. So we've just lost them. <laughs> that's about how many twenty five. But how many of those four four uh, Sunderland fans also think they're shit? That's not the point. All of them. It is the point. Let's move on. Sorry, Sunderland fans. <laughs> so so yeah, Villa, great great wins. Um, but the other results, Sheffield United have been in the goals. It's fair to say they scored three away at Burton on Friday night, and then uh, they took three points and then scored four on Tuesday night. However, conceded five and lost at home to Fulham, uh, which was probably one of the games of the season and. Um, you know, Fulham have, have been very much up and down this season, but they'll be more than happy with an away win. Uh, a club who, are, you know, more than happily picking up points left, right, and centre. So, um, you know, big win for them. It could be the start of something special for Fulham. And I think a lot of people tip them to go up at the start of the season. And I think they've, they've took the time to get into their stride. And it'll be interesting to see how they get on in the, the coming weeks. But Cardiff City were the only other side to pick up six points so far with home and away wins. And Bolton have picked up a couple of draws, and despite still being in the relegation zone, uh, they do actually remain unbeaten in the last five. And I think slowly but surely, they look like they're potentially mobilising themselves into a side that could stay up. And I think if you look at that against the likes of Hull, Burton Albion and Birmingham City, they are very much looking up at the rest of the table with very little to shout about. So, yeah, there's you know, a lot of narrative over the last few weeks. And, you know, Villa and... The, I can't be any happier, can I really, with six points out of those two games. And a home game against Ipswich at the weekend potentially sees us pick nine points up. So, yeah, happy with that. Can we get a Willis prediction? Uh, I will go for a... I'm going to go for a clean sheet as well. 2-0 win. Going to go for it. Good stuff. Okay, well, let's move on and talk about a team that can't keep a clean sheet. (laughs) And that's our German boys. Where do we start? Hertha Berlin. Now, the lads have had a... Pretty torrid season so far, haven't yeah. they? And this um, continued over the weekend. They played at home against Borussia Mönchengladbach and they lost 4-2. They were 3-0 down after 20 minutes and um, it really didn't look good. No. They managed to get a couple of goals back. Um, Mitchell Weiser scored uh, with about 20, 20 minutes to go and that sort of made it look a little bit closer than it was going to be and then obviously Borussia Mönchengladbach went pretty much straight up the other end and scored and... and Won that game 4-2. Hertha have slipped down to 14th now and they're only two places and six points above the relegation zone. But the Bundesliga is quite similar to how the Premier League is set up at the moment and there's very few points separating the sort of seventh down to uh, down to the relegation places. So they're only five points away from, uh, from seventh. So yeah. win on Sunday and it's a winnable game. They're playing away at bottom of the league alone in you'd probably 
sort of class it as a as a must win probably at this stage. They've obviously got a game in between that on Thursday away at Athletic Bilbao in the uh, Europa big, League. Big game. And anyone from that group can still go through. Um, you would have thought Hertha would probably have to win the next two games if they're going to harbour any real ambition of of getting through to the next round. But something's going to have to change there because they are struggling big time and they they have had quite a few injuries of late. But um, they're having a pretty similar season to Southampton, so. I'm hopeful that they're going to get the three points on Sunday, just like the Saints. Yes, you certainly sound more positive about Hertha Berlin than you do Southampton, though. So, yeah, we'll see how that goes. But, yeah, I think the Europa League's a really interesting one to keep an eye on. And um, and obviously the weekend, it's, it's a really good opportunity for them. But let's see and uh, we'll catch up on Hertha next week. Absolutely. One, one more thing before we move on from them. Um, if you get chance, I think it's the second goal from uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, scored by Raphael it's an absolute belter, so check that one out because it's got potential goal of dare season written all over it. Get in there! Well done, he's 13. Game set and match, Owen. Welcome back to the Sweep Podcast and let's get back to the Premier League where Crystal Palace hosted Everton. It was 2 all. It was indeed, and what a start for the Palace. Ruben Loftus-Cheek with those quick feet of his... Uh, the latest England starlet, indeed. destined for the uh, Golden Boot of the World Cup. He is indeed. Yeah, and then they just self-combusted <laughs> and it all went wrong for them. And obviously, one man was pivotal in that going wrong. That was Umar Nias. And uh, I know that the Premier League are investigating this uh, this dive of his and they've now charged him and he could potentially miss the game on Sunday against Southampton. And you just wonder whether they're going to make a real example of him and potentially ban him for th- three games, maybe? Yeah, Who knows? And then Palace go and get a second and you think everything's all right again and Roy looked happy and what a goal that was. Yeah, it was. Brilliant counter-attack football, great ball in from Joel Ward and and a cracking finish from Wilfred Zaha who's just brought so much to Palace since he's come back from injury and you really wonder where they'd be without him. I would imagine further down the table. Well, you can't be further than Bob. Well, no, but uh, they'd certainly be on less points and he is potentially going to drag them through this season and you could see if they stay up he will be more than instrumental he will be the catalyst for absolutely everything they do at, the, at this rate and you know the ball in from Ward was fantastic and it doesn't get any better than that but equally Zaha's got there that in a position that potentially other players don't get in. Yeah I agree I think that pace is one attribute that, that Palace side have got in abundance yeah. and you just wonder whether bringing Benteke back is going to maybe harm them because they've looked quite quite good with uh, with Townsend and, uh, and and Wilfred Zahar up front over the last couple of weeks and they're possibly going to have to change their style of play up but Hodgson will probably want that target man up there and Benteke could have scored a couple when he came on and, and, and could have changed the game in the second half obviously after they scored their second they let Everton straight back into it and conceded a goal just before half time and, and obviously went in two all at the break now there were chances in the second half but you were you almost felt like it was two teams who were more scared about losing the point than actually going for yeah. the three. And um, David Unsworth came out after the game and, and said that he was pleased with the point and pleased with his players. But I think that Everton need to need to make a, an appointment and make one fast because they don't seem to be picking up um, a huge amount of points at the moment. And that's the only thing that's going to get them to a, a more respectable standing in the Premier League. You look at the amount of money that they've spent in the summer and I know we keep going back to the striker issue. I think that the defenders have got a lot to, to, yes. to be accountable for. And... Um, our, our good mate Ashley Williams got dropped for this game, didn't he? Um, so. Mental Ashley got yeah. got put on the bench, and but Michael Keane and Phil Jagielka didn't look anything special. They were struggling with high balls that were 
being sort of punted downfield by Spironi and just a game really devoid of a huge amount of quality but exciting all the same. Yeah, I think the manager points are really good on. I think it is something they need to they need to work on and they need to get there and you know they're bidding kind of ten million pounds for Marco Silva who you know, a great appointment that potentially will be, but he's got a really good job at Watford and he's, he's got a good platform to build on with them and you know, Everton are more than happy to spend that money, but potentially just give David Unsworth a go. You know, things have changed since he's come in. Um whether they've changed and and they, they can build on that, I'm not sure, but you know, he's doing a good enough job at the moment and ultimately there's not many managers there and with the West Brom job coming up as well, there's another job that they're effectively fighting against as well. Yeah, that's a very good point. And uh, two teams that were fighting literally with each other at times on yeah. uh, on Monday night were Brighton and Stoke and another two-all draw between those those two teams. And I think most people looked at this Monday night fixture and weren't necessarily over-enamoured with the, uh, the potential. But we had a great game. Um, I think that, that Stoke went there to try and win the game rather than settle for a point. I think they'll be probably pleased with it in the end because Brighton looked to be coming on strong after that equaliser. And um, It's just one of those games that, that, again, doesn't do a huge amount for Stoke because they are struggling towards the bottom of the table. But Brighton remain unbeaten, haven't lost a game now since, I think, the start of October. Yeah. Um, Chris Hewton just deserves so much um, respect and credit for the, for, the, for the job that he's done. And he goes about it in a, a really quiet and understated manner as well, which I think's you know, a really, really good quality to have. And, you know, you look at someone like Alan Pardew, for instance, if that was him now, we'd all know about it. It'd be all over the place. So, yeah, it's fantastic to see. And, you know, Mark Hughes will be disappointed to let that lead slip twice, but there's positives for them to build on as well. You know, in a way, point anywhere in the Premier League is a good result. And, you know, I think Brighton, if you look at them, they've got Crystal Palace next week, which will be a huge, huge game for them. And, you know, it's great to have that sort of, it's not, not so much a derby in terms of location, but there's a massive rivalry between the two clubs. Yeah, there is a huge rivalry. I've, I've never really understood that one either. I, I'm sure that there is a that there is a reason why they are such such fierce rif, uh, rivals. But um, Glenn Murray, again, in the headlines in this game, didn't score. Probably should have had a penalty. Yeah, I reckon so. Um, you know, we see a lot of uh, decisions go the wrong way, um, but for, for different reasons. And penalties are given when they possibly shouldn't be. And, and you know, it's a shame when you see one that's not given. Um, but again, you know they'll they'll be more than happy with the point, and um, you know I think they they probably won't dwell on it too much going forward. Yeah, and it sort of harks back to our point about the uh, the Hertha result on the table in Germany. I mean, you look at Stoke are in fifteenth, but they're three points behind Brighton here in ninth. Yeah, so exactly. they win on Saturday, their season can be completely changed around with with one result. So um, obviously interesting to see how they get on. But um, do we have to? Go on to this next game. I think we, we do. Skip I, th- it? I think you know we can we can touch on on how poor Southampton look at the moment. But Liverpool won three uh, 0 fairly comfortable. Um, I, I I know you watched the game and, and you will have certainly more opinion on it than I will. But uh, a game they would be expected to win and, and they did win. And, and as I say, it was comfortable. And you know they they've got an individual talent in, in Mohamed Salah who just continues to impress and. Is he top scorer in the league this season? Yeah, so nine goals. Now? Yeah, nine yeah. goals, which is more than your Agueros and your Morata. Exactly, and, and it was faster, the, the fastest Liverpool player to get to that tally, wasn't it, after uh, Robbie Fowler? So, you know, he, um, he he looks fantastic, and I think there were a few doubts about whether he would adapt to, to the Premier League again after obviously being here previously and impressed so well in Italy, and sometimes it does take that time, but, you know, he took to it like a, a duck to water, and, you know, for Liverpool, he's. Um, instrumental in, in that kind of front three with Mane and Firmino and 
Um, Coutinho obviously got a goal as well, so it's looking really positive for them. And you know they obviously still show at times those defensive frailties. And last night they played in the Champions League, got a three 0 lead, and ended up conceding three goals to draw. And you know th- that's not uncommon to see in the Premier League as well. But obviously Southampton couldn't quite match that on Saturday. No, and the reason that we couldn't match that on Saturday was because we didn't have a single shot on target. And right. without having a shot on target, you're not going to score a goal. And um, no, that we uh, we just didn't show anywhere near enough in terms of desire going forward. And you look at the negativity around Claude Puel's tactics when he was at Southampton and the the type of football that we played. We still had shots on target. Yeah. We still scored goals. And I think that's the most disappointing thing is that when they brought Pellegrino in in the summer, the idea was that it would be a complete change from the dour football that we'd watched under Puel. And um, it's been the opposite, really. We've seemed to have gone backwards and um, I'm really hoping that he changes things up on Sunday. I would like to see a different formation. I think that he will have um, his hands tied a little bit really because Romeo picked up his fifth booking of the of the season in this game so he's going to be injured. I'm hoping that Mario Lamina is going to come back because we've really gone to pieces since, since he's been missing. But we just need to set up in a more solid manner, playing with Bufal, Redmond and Tadic away from home at a top six team you're not going to have any sort of defensive nails from those players and then naturally asks more of the players behind them. So I think he got his tactics wrong on Saturday and I think that he probably should have come out and, and held his hands up. I still think we'll be OK. I think that we've got enough to uh, to keep ourselves away from that bottom three, but we need to start by winning games and a huge game on Sunday against Everton. If we win that, we can go up, I think, to uh, to eighth or ninth. So again, similar to what we're saying about Stoke, your season just can turn on one result. I think the, the thing for me that stands out at Southampton this year is there's there are a few defensive errors in there as well. You don't look as solid at the back. So whereas before you could possibly get away with not uh, certainly not scoring any goals, but you know if you if you're scoring one or two a game, you know two's a stretch. But at least if you're not conceding then you're not going to lose. Whereas I think on Saturday in particular, there was a couple of individual errors that, you know, they're costing goals. And I think organisationally as well, particularly the, um, I think it was the second goal where Van Dijk stepped out uh, with Firmino and it was just, you know, he, he left a massive space there and he just, there was no kind of organisation within the, the, the central defensive areas then. Yeah, I mean, the worst thing was he didn't step out for any particular reason. Firmino didn't have the ball, he wasn't close to receiving the ball, he was trying to anticipate a situation that was never going to happen and had he just dropped five yards, that space wouldn't have been there. Was he... Wesley Hoot wouldn't have been pulled out of position and Forster wouldn't have had to stand there like a concrete tree and let the ball, the, the ball go straight past Was he man-marking him throughout the game? That, the, only, the only excuse I maybe had for him was that he was man-marking him, but... If Firmino, he was, he did a very poor job of it. Yeah, well, that, that's what I thought as well. But Firmino obviously put himself in that area, you know, between the lines. And I thought that was potentially because he realised that Van Dijk was was in that position where he was going to come out with him. But, you know, it, it's little things like that, that that are making the difference at the moment. And obviously you are needing something going forward, but definitely need something to uh, to change at the back as well. Yeah, I mean, one, one stat that I did see this week, which is interesting, is that we had exactly the same record under Claude Puel this time last season. As we have got this season, we'd uh, played 12 games, got 13 points, scored exactly the same amount of goals and conceded the exact same amount of goals. Now, we did have harder fixtures at the start of last season. Um, and this and season... European football. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but... I think that it's important for the fans to retain a bit of perspective and we talk about all these managerial positions that are coming up and they're not getting filled quickly because there's not a huge amount of quality out there. So you've almost got to be careful not to cut your nose off to spite your face. You could end up in a situation where 
you could have someone like Eric Black in charge of the club and you know as well as yes, anybody else that nobody wants that. No, well let's move on from them and talk about another club who are uh, struggling at the moment and had a new manager as well and that's West Ham who lost 2-0 away at Watford and um, you know West Ham and David Moyes is that a perfect fit for you? Again, it's a difficult one. It's a similar one to the Sunderland one for me. And um, you look at West Ham and you look at the the owners that they have there and you look at the fans and that relationship's toxic between the two. And a manager almost gets in the way of that. And the only way that a manager can defuse that situation is by winning games. The confidence in that West Ham squad at the moment looks like it's at an all-time low. The players that they would normally have used to cause problems for teams in the past, the likes of Antonio, the likes of Carroll, the likes of Lanzini, just haven't turned up this season. And... Um, you look at what Arnautovic has or hasn't done since he's gone in there and that really typifies the season that West Ham have had so far. I think that David Moyes has got a massive job because it's not like going to a small team with um, without ambition. This team are full of talent and they've spent a lot of money and he's now got the responsibility to get them playing again. It's potentially his last big job in football. If yeah, he gets this I one agree. wrong... Yeah then that could be him. And um, I still sort of struggle to, to understand how he keeps getting given these chances because he proved at Man United, he proved at Real Sociedad, he proved at Sunderland that he is not up to doing a job when the expectation levels are high. And I think, you know, as important as that, football's changed a lot since he was doing a good job at Everton and he hasn't changed with it. Um, and, you know, you can look at the likes of, of Pulis and Allardyce, as we said earlier on, you know their styles haven't changed either necessarily, but they've at least adapted to to what they need to do a little bit more. Not sure Moyes does that, and not just that. The fact that he's going into West Ham, a club who, as we discussed earlier, have always been known for playing the West Ham way, a particular brand of football that David Moyes isn't associated with. So you saw the reaction that the fans gave him at the end of the the game on Saturday, and it wasn't one of "We welcome you to our club. We want you to do well." It was very much. We've just lost a game of football. We're going to give you no time at all. So I think he's got a massive challenge there. Um, let's talk about Watford because they obviously got back on to the sort of winning run after yeah. after three defeats on the bounce, which is massive for them, especially in the um, the speculative times that they've had in recent weeks over whether Silva's going to go or not. And um, they looked excellent again. All over the park as well. You know, even even Gomez, who is, is quite often a almost a comedy character of, of types and some of the saves that he pulled off at the weekend were, were fantastic and really kept them in the game. And, you know, they, they give them that opportunity to build on that as well. But certainly going forward, you know, Richarlison's had a great start considering where he's come from. Um, Andre Gray looks fantastic as well. And, you know, they, they, they've got a really good makings of a good squad there. Um, not just a few individuals that kind of drag them through. Every player there seems to be giving 100% and performing well every week. Yeah, I think that you saw two goalkeepers in completely different form. Again, we've um, sort of glossed over Fraser Forster a little bit from the Southampton game, so we, we can only do our listeners sort of justice and talk about Joe Hart this week. And, yeah. um, made one really good save um, and then conceded a goal from Richarlison that you would expect him to do better with. And um, Again, he sort of typifies the struggles that West Ham have had all season. He's somebody that's almost trying a little bit too hard at times. Yeah. Um, and... You can't fault the effort of some of the West Ham players, but I think that there are others who need to do more. And um, They're supposedly enjoying training a lot more under Moyes, and you wonder whether the, the results will come in the next few weeks. But um, big, big job there, and um, if he's still there by sort of the end of this season, I think that West Ham will have done well. 
Absolutely. And another manager under pressure is Paul Clement, who uh, took his Swansea side to Burnley and lost 2-0. And fantastic result for Burnley. You know, we, we've spoken enough times about them this season to, to praise them. And, and rightly so. You know, it's another clean sheet for them. Nick Pope's there between the sticks. And to be fair, in this game, he didn't really have a huge amount to do, whereas ordinarily he's, he's making some worldy saves. But, you know, Swansea just looks so, so poor. And it's, say it time and time again, that, that squad... For me, simply isn't good enough. And I also, I, I'm coming around to thinking that I'm not sure Clement's getting the best out of them even now. No, it's one of those where he went in last season and did a job. He um, he was there to firefight. He was there to keep them up. And he managed to do that. But I think he did that on the basis that there were three worst teams in Swansea last year. Yes. I don't really think it was down to the quality that they had. They didn't do a huge amount in the summer other than sell their best two players. Um, and they also sold Jack Cork. And that sort of went under the radar for quite a few yeah. Um, teams and pundits but then he's gone to Burnley he's got an England call up he scored the goal that's ultimately won them the game on Saturday um, and he is somebody who's built in the Sean Dyche mould he's just absolutely perfect for that football club and you look at Swansea and you don't you're not able to really find that sort of player you used to associate Sigurdsson or yeah. someone like um, who's the the Welsh midfielder who plays for them Leon uh, Britton Leon, Leon yeah. Britton yeah so those players were the sort of players that you could almost identify with the Swansea side and they seem to have lost that identity. Um, I think that there's potential for Tony Pulis to go in there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, the fact that he's now available probably makes the difference there. I think, you know, talking about the, the jobs that are available in the Premier League at the moment, it's difficult to put people into those jobs and they're potentially going to have to stick with what they've got. Whereas I think Swansea look at may look at Pulis and think this is the ideal opportunity for that and realistically as we've said Pulis we expect him to be in another job by the end of the season and you know that would be perfect for him and I think Swansea just need to kind of get back to basics we've looked at them over the years as a really good football inside and they've as you say they've never really had to battle too much because there's been worse sides now I think they really do have to and you know they can look at Burnley as an example you've got the likes of Ben Mee and, and James Tarkovsky at the back who are just blocking absolutely everything. I think Tarkovsky's got the most blocks in the league this season. So, you know, they do just get back to basics and they really, really dig out results. And I think that's where Swansea are massively lacking at the moment. Very good point. And, and just before we finish on the Premier League, um, cracking second goal from, uh, from Ashley Barnes. It was. Half volley. The, the way that it bounced back out afterwards as yeah, well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant that. finish. And, and that takes Burnley up to seventh. But they're on the same points as both Arsenal and Liverpool, and if you'd have asked anyone at the start of the season if that was going to be the case, I think that um, not many people would have predicted it. No, they wouldn't. Well, that's all for the Premier League. Quiz. Welcome back to the final part of the Sweeper podcast. And it's time to have a quick chat about our live events. So we've got the football quiz coming up on uh, Wednesday the 6th of December. And it's at Leeds Beckett Students Union in Leeds City Centre. It's £2 per person to enter and you can have teams of one to six. We've filled up the majority of the tables now, but there are a few left. So if you would like to come to the event, please get in touch with us via Facebook or via our email address. Mitch is going to give you those details in a second and let us know so that we can get you booked in. The quiz will be in multimedia format, so it'll have video <laughs> rounds and uh, various different picture rounds as well, and it will give you the opportunity to prove to your mates that you know the most about football. So let's see you all down there on the 6th of December 
for a few festive drinks and a lot of football trivia. Absolutely, really looking forward to it, aren't we? So yeah, it's be uh, good to see you all. But as Michael said, get in touch with us. Um, get in touch with us at, on Twitter at the Sweeper Pod. Uh, we're on Instagram and Facebook. Just search the Sweeper Podcast. And you can also email us at thesweeperpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, as ever, listen on iTunes and SoundCloud. And on iTunes, subscribe, rate, review. Five stars, always welcome. But let's get into the quiz. And Michael, it's the first club of the new format. So just as a bit of a recap, we've said we're going to do uh, five different questions to give you the opportunity to earn five points. And uh, last week we did the international because it was the international break. But this week is the first club, and we're going to go just south of where we are currently to Sheffield. Sheffield Wednesday. Oh, God. Right, okay. And, uh, yeah, I've got five questions for you. I think you've got a decent chance of getting a few of these. And uh, we're going to start with Hillsborough. Very, very famous ground for a number of different reasons. I would like to know, 2,000 either side, what the current capacity is. Oh, my God. Um, it's one of the bigger grounds in the championship, if I remember rightly. I'm going to go for 38,000 on the nose. I've got to give it you. It's 39,732, and I gave you 2,000 either side. So, correct, there's one point. Jackpot. So, you can you can have your one point and, and do one now. <laughs> I'm done with that. Okay, so on to uh, something a little bit more specific. Can you tell me who the top goal scorer with 19 goals was in the 93-94 Premier League season when they finished 7th? Um, I've got one player in mind and that is David Hurst. Is incorrect. It's actually Mark Bright with 19 goals. Oh. Yes, I know. Hard to imagine. The fastest ever sending off in British League football is held by former Sheffield Wednesday player. Can you tell me who got sent off after just 13 seconds during the opening weekend of the season in 2000? Oh my goodness me. I, I appreciate that's very niche. What a question. Um, the only... Oh, I don't even think he was playing for him then. and I don't think that you would put him in there. Um, but I can't... I'm struggling to think of anyone else. Paolo Di Canio. No, it's incorrect. But I like your logic there. It was actually Kevin Pressman. Ah, oh, I nearly went for Kevin so Pressman. He, he handled a shot outside the area from Wolves to Murray Ketz Bayer, the absolute mentalist who used to play for Newcastle. Unlucky, good guess, but incorrect. Can you name three of the top ten transfers to Sheffield Wednesday? Just three of ten. Three what, in terms, in terms of value? Yeah. Um, probably not. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'll give you four guesses. You'll give me four guesses. So you've guesses. got a spare guess. Fantastic news. Um, I will go with Jordan Rhodes in there. Correct, he's top. Okay. About 11 million this summer. See, now I'm going to struggle because well, I'm, the plan. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of whether they're going to be players who played for them in the old Premier League or whether they're going to be players who they will have signed since they're in the Championship. Now... I wonder how much they paid for your old mate Barry Bannon. Well, let's uh, let's let's put Barry Bannon in there as a guess. It's incorrect. Oh, so you've got two more guesses. Um, these need to be right. Uh, of course they do. Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, I, there's going to be two really obvious ones as well, aren't there? Um, I will go with somebody like. 
I don't even know if, he, if this person played for him or not. Did Reggie Blinker play for Sheffield <laughs> he Wednesday? He did, but he's not in the top oh, ten. Rubbish. Um, I'll give you one more guess, just to, but, to save face. Well, I'd rather not save face. I think by having another guess, I'm going to lose more face. Come on, who was it? Okay, so you've got Adam Reach from Middlesbrough. Oh, yeah, that, that old classic. Uh, Gilles De Builder from PSV Eindhoven in 99. Do you know what his nickname was? No. Bob. Brilliant. Darko Kovacevic from Red Star in 95-96. Andrew Hinchcliffe was also on there. Fernando Forestieri, Gary Hooper, Andy Booth, Alman Abdi and Andy Sinton. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. Okay. And the last question, just to uh, get yourself a, a last point. What is Sheffield Wednesday's biggest football league win? And I'll give you one goal either side for their goals. Um, what, so I've just got to get the amount that they scored? Yeah. I mean, it could be anything, it could be. It could uh, be. There's probably not going to be one or two. Yeah. Twelve. Is incorrect. It's nine. They beat Birmingham City, I'm pleased to say, 9-1. In December 1930, they all count. And the heaviest league defeat... Was against Aston Villa, ten nil in October nineteen twelve. I know a lot more about Sheffield Wednesday than I did five minutes ago, and that's always a pleasure, isn't it? To we're learn. In, we're we an learn. educational podcast. We are indeed. We are indeed. Okay. Well, I think that's all we've got time for this week. And as Michael said, get involved with the quiz, get in contact with us as well, and we'll see you next week. Absolutely. Thanks for that quiz, Mitch. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. Good. Glad you didn't. I'll look forward to the revenge next week. Absolutely. And we will see you then. We will indeed. Auf Wiedersehen. Au revoir.